All right, we got another podcast that's about color. I think you didn't think we'd go back to it a third time, but here we are. We already told you that special tidbit about blue, about how blue is not really found in nature. So some cultures in history have not had that in their vernacular. They never even come up with a word for blue. Essentially what Emma's saying is that blue was invented in 1954. Yeah, classic Coca-Cola, just like inventing random shit. Just kidding. (laughs) And we've also told you about how we interpret colors how animals get their color, and how our brain forms a map of what different color things are and light waves and all that. Sometimes things have pigments that are certain colors, but other times things are literally just shaped in a way where all the light of the color is absorbed except for that specific color. Or reflected or, yeah, absorption or reflection. It's crazy. Hummingbirds are just off the wall. Hummingbirds aren't actually the color we perceive them to be. It's just that that's what our eyes see and our brains perceive from those waves. Yeah. But then today... We are going into the human characterization of colors. So basically, how do we determine on the spectrum of light where red stops and orange begins? So it is very interesting. And... Oh... Also, at the end of the episode, we are going to have a surprise snippet about sneezing. Sneezing snippet. (laughs) Quick little preview tidbit for this episode. There's this nice little memory trick for the colors called Roy G. Biv. Oh, really? You learned that in first grade? (laughs) Just kidding. This podcast is going to be the opposite of that, which means this podcast is going to be really good, like always. Enjoy. I'm Emma. I'm Ian, and this is our podcast, Nobody's Talking About Everything, Solving Nothing. If we get lucky, we might solve something. Okay, so as we have said before, color is our perception of light waves. We call them visible light, but that's because they're the only ones we can see. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Yeah, visible means that you can see it. Got that part, I already understood it. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, color is a spectrum, which means that anytime we label a color, it is essentially an arbitrary distinction of where one color starts and one color stops. I guess the only distinction that could be made is the starting and ending point for visible light. Yes. The first color is red, the last color is violet. Everything else in between is just wherever we decide to pause at. Yeah. So in our English language, we have split the color spectrum into 11 colors. And in different cultures, they choose different areas of the spectrum to define their colors. It's not a universal thing. In English, we have obviously red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, pink, brown, gray, black, and white. Obviously, that was not in order of... Importance. Best. (laughs) No, best goes white, black, pink, yellow, blue, green, red, gray, orange, brown. I pretty much agree. I would maybe say you had yellow a little too high, gray a little too low. um, And I would maybe change a little bit around. But overall, yeah, that's pretty good. But remember that yellow is just light gold. You had white and black as your one and two. Yeah. Remember, gray is just a combination of your two favorite colors. But it just makes them so much worse. You take that back right now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, your favorite color is gray. I love gray. Ian's favorite color is dark gray. 
it goes back and forth between deep pink and dark gray. Yeah. Dark, dark gray. Not black. <laughs> deep pink and light black. Yes. Or dark white. Well, dark white could be any color. <laughs> okay, so one example of this is that when we see the colors blue, purple, and brown, we obviously see them as three distinct different colors. We have names for them. But in different language, such as Wobe, they see all three of those colors as one color. They define it as one color, named Kape. K-P-E. Here we go. I love this language already because three colors into one and beautiful three-letter word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think English has any like K-P words like that. Bankruptcy. Not K-R. So, of course, when we hear that sentence that they see all three as one color, our uh, classic Eurocentric minds are like, wait, how do they missee the colors? No, they don't missee the colors. They still see it exactly the same, obviously. They just define it as the same word. So, for instance, we can see many, many, many different shades of green. We can see yellow green, light green, dark green, blue green, different teal. things. Yeah, teal, blue green. It's green blue. <laughs> we can see all those different colors and they obviously look way different to us from each other, but we just call them all green because that's the way we've defined the color in our culture. We're all seeing the same colors, but we just have different words for it. So in this language, Wobe, they only have three categories for colors. And you might wonder, how did they pick those categories? Well, my only guess is chartreuse. Chartreuse is the number one, yeah. <laughs> It's chartreuse, periwinkle, and magenta. If you showed me two options and you said which one is chartreuse, I wouldn't probably get it right. <laughs> All right. Researchers have found that if a language has three or four color categories, and I'm saying this like, okay, English has 11 color categories. Some languages only have three or four, which is just mind-blowing to me. That's pretty crazy. So if a language only has three or four color categories, scientists can easily predict what colors they would be. They're not just going to be like a random selection, like they're just... Pink, purple, gray, and green. Yeah, they're not just going to be random like that, which they had in the past thought they were, but no, they're not random. It's a very predictable pattern. So if a language has six color terms, such as Mandarin, they have terms for the color black, white, red, green, yellow, and blue. And there are many cultures around the world that have six color terms and they all pretty much all have those same definitions. And then if a culture has four color terms, such as Ibibio. Ibibio, which is a culture from Nigeria. Yes, which I'm sure we all knew. but Obviously. Their color terms are black, white, red, and green. So those are the distinctions that they made for. But if a culture only has three terms, like Pomo, which is a Native American tribe in California, or Wobe, which we already mentioned, which is a tribe from the Ivory Coast of Africa, their color terms are black, white, and red. That makes sense. And 83% of the world's thousands of languages fit into this pattern of color terms that are basically most important or most prevalent. So this creates very clear patterns. All cultures seem to name their colors in a particular order. They first will make the distinction between black and white. That makes sense. Because obviously that's the most useful, I guess, and prevalent. And stark, 
difference. Mm-hmm. You know? And then the third color is always red. That makes sense. Really? Well, I think so because I think it's one of the most eye-catching colors. They think it's because think, of blood. I was going to say everybody has blood. So like yeah. that's like one of the most universal things. And it's like very important that you recognize what's blood. That makes sense. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. So and it's like an evolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. That was um, tattooing ink color. Went, it was always blacks and then usually reds are. They started with only black and then they added red as mm-hmm. the second color. Yeah. And then after that, they start to have terms for the color green, yellow, then blue and brown, and then other colors like purple, gray, orange, and pink. Pretty much it just gets cooler as it goes. Yeah, and also some cultures that are still going today, they don't even really use color terms. They use terms as they'd say like, it's like the sea or it's like tree bark. They don't have like specific words to represent colors. They use common items. Yeah, which actually makes a lot of sense to do. Yeah, except the one that's like, his shoes are the color of an orange. Ancient Greek writing does not have references to some colors like blue and orange. Which goes to show that most Greeks are believed to have been colorblind. Just kidding. Actually, I was just making that up, but the next sentence that Emma typed was actually, this was used by some societies to wrongly speculate that ancient people were colorblind. Also, I just did that, so. Oh, great job, Whitey. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, White men at work, live in action. I'm embarrassing. Homer, (laughs) the great Greek writer, wrote many accounts using the color purple to describe blood, a dark cloud, waves in the ocean, and a rainbow. Yeah, so he described them all using the same color descriptor. Obviously, it's not that they all looked the same to him. It's just that that's the vocabulary that he had available to him at the time. That's what the culture determined the distinctions for. Anyways, many accounts from ancient texts have referred to the sea as wine-looking. Wine-ish. So, yeah, that is very interesting. Silly Greeks. Isn't the water near Greece, like, way more... Green? Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, they didn't have a word for blue because there's almost no naturally occurring things that are blue. And if you don't have artificial blue pigments, you don't think that the water looks blue because it is obviously colorless. Yeah, so weird. Some explorers claimed that the less the number of color categories defined showed the less intellectual and cultural development of the people of that culture. Again, if we've outlined anything in this podcast, it should be that white colonists have long tried to scientifically prove that native people are, quote, less evolved than Europeans. So many people back then had wrongly interpreted Darwin's theory to promote eugenics trying to say that native people are more animal-like or not civil or things like that. Savage. Very inaccurate. Yeah. And then that obviously is the beginning of the basis of exploitation. Mm -hmm. And it happens everywhere from races to gender to sexuality to species all the time. Yeah, if you can convince yourself that the subject that you're subjugating is lesser than you, it makes your actions feel morally okay. And so people obviously view animals that we use for food as lesser than because 
it definitely makes them sleep better at night. Yeah. Can't blame them. It's an argument that people used a lot during slavery, saying that like we were taking care of black people and that they needed us to guide them. Like for Christianity was a huge one. Like without Europeans, they would have not have their souls saved. That we were like their guardians type of thing. And that obviously sounds disgusting to any person with a straightforward thinking brain in today's society. And so if you want to stay on the right side of history a couple of years from now, when they're talking about different types of subjects in podcasts, you gotta, you gotta think with your future brain. Mm-hmm. And also everybody listening to this podcast in the year 2,222, <laughs> what's up? We're trying our best. You're welcome. I'm sure we're messing up a lot, but yeah. I think that that's weirdly a common argument that people try to make to vegans to try to point out hypocrisy, I guess, is that they come up with a bunch of like desert island situations and they like ask you about worst case scenario or like, you know, weird little loophole things to try to, again, catch you in hypocrisy. And I don't think that there's any use in creating a hierarchy within species because it's not necessary for us to kill them. It does no good because, you know, somebody can say, if you're on an island and there's a young male and female cow you could eat or your dying mother you could eat or you could starve to death, what are you going to do? It's like, well, I don't know. Let me answer that with a question. If you are a person in the year 2022 with access to a grocery store with an entire diet of delicious, sustainable products, would you eat them or not? Yeah. Yeah, it's a totally different scenario. So like the desert island situation just has no relevance. And similarly, we don't need to create a hierarchy of species because we don't have to eat them. Again, if I'm in a life or death situation, I'm going to do a lot of stuff that I would never do in my ordinary life. And I'm proud of that, that I wouldn't do that stuff in ordinary life because I have those choices available to me and I am able to make a more ethical choice. I would shoot Oprah in the face to save the human race. Oh, I I would shoot Oprah in the face if as long as I could just get away with it. Okay, this isn't working. We gotta move on. (laughs) Isaac Newton was the first scientist to separate the existence of different colors. So in the past, they just used kind of like colloquial terms, just kind of whatever felt right for how something appeared. There was no like rigid distinctions between colors. Also, Isaac Newton, just busy as hell, apparently doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, smart people just do a lot of shit. Yeah, he did a lot of development in the field of light and color, obviously. He was the first person to put light through a prism, which splits visible light into the rainbow. That's the first time that we saw a rainbow in like a scientific way. And Newton did that? Yep. Jeez. Yeah, it's really cool. Anyway, so because of all of his work with this, he thought that we should scientifically categorize the colors. And again, it's totally arbitrary. He just chose these terms and these distinctions, and he believed that there were seven colors. So he wanted the color scale to correspond with the musical scale. So since the musical scale was already seven notes, he needed seven colors. And also, weirdly, Newton was very into alchemy, which I didn't really know what it was. 
It is a philosophy that thinks they can use science and metal, weirdly, to indefinitely prolong life. So basically mm-hmm. voodoo. And if somebody says like, well, you know, the rainbow has this many colors, so that's how many colors there are or whatever. No. That's just a coincidence. <laughs> it's cool. Well, no, the rainbow doesn't have that many colors. Like if you look at a rainbow, again, it's a light spectrum. It has all the colors in it. It has, you could break it into a million different but colors. But like with a prism, I feel like, I guess maybe I'm thinking of like. No, it projects a rainbow. Pictures so- of prisms that have like, like lines in between. Yeah, there's no lines. <laughs> A rainbow through a prism looks just like a rainbow in the sky. It's just like a spectrum of light. So when those spectrums are happening, are there is a rainbow actually like bigger than what we see and there's just like non-visible waves shooting through? I don't know. I don't really understand the mechanics of rainbows. Stay tuned for a future episode on rainbows. If you thought color episode number three was our final episode on color, you are wrong. We're about to get real gay. <laughs> So for unknown reasons, alchemy contains a lot of symbolism with the number seven. I don't know. They just really like the number seven, but it's common to like the number seven amongst like different religious things anyways. And casinos. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, because he was into alchemy, he chose the number seven. The musical scale already had seven. So boom, he chose seven colors. And also the ancient Greeks who are always popping up everywhere. Greek. They also related the musical scale with the seven planets, thinking that the colors and the notes equated to different frequencies or levels of the afterlife. (laughs) So that like you would kind of go to different levels of heaven, like on different planets. Super heaven. (laughs) And then also remember that back then the seven planets were the moon, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, and the Sun, which we had learned in the previous podcast. That is how we got the names for the days of the week, because those were the order of the planets in the sky. They didn't know the true order at the time, but that's how we got the names in order. What do you think is the better name, Miracles or Sabado? (laughs) (laughs) Jueves. Jueves. (laughs) On Jueves, we eat huevos. Yeah, so anyways, people hypothesized that because Newton was so obsessed with the number seven and that he wanted it to match the musical scale and the planets, that he basically just threw in the color indigo for no good reason, just to make it seven. Because no one really recognizes the color indigo. It's like, a lot of people don't even know what color it is. It's basically purple, right? It's not a color. It's bullshit. It's like weirdly blue, but anyways. Yeah, it's just a bullshit color, but... Rory... GBV. Yeah, that's a real slap in the face to Newton. You know, the pride flags don't even include indigo. Six colors, the way it should be. Yep. Let's look up what color chartreuse is, just so we know. I think I recorded. Chartreuse, kind of a pea greeny, yellow, yellow green. Yuck. We were wrong, but we knew chartreuse sucked. So there's some more color info for you. I think it was pretty interesting. We got a pretty colorful podcast. Yeah. One topic that has always interested me, which has very strongly come out in this podcast, is like how we make arbitrary lines in the sand for things that are not like naturally distinctive. Mm -hmm. Part of it, though, is that we've needed to do that. For simplicity. For simplicity. Yeah. But also because even though there is technically an infinite spectrum of color, like there are infinite colors, Mm -hmm. our brain can only perceive so many colors. Yeah. 
just because our brain can't truly perceive a spectrum, we need to draw lines. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting because we can perceive the difference in those colors. Like, for example, with Homer saying that the waves and the rainbow and the wine and all that stuff looked the same to him, it didn't look the same to him. He just categorized it in that way. He could see all the little, little details in everything that it did look different. He just didn't have the breadth of vocabulary to describe it in detail. I think what you're saying, what I said, are both true at the same time. I think that they're kind of different parts of the same. Bet you didn't think that we'd have a segment on sneezing. Secret segment. Secret sneezing segment. It's also, this was a secret to me. Yeah, as are a lot of things in our marriage. Do I know the secrets or not? No. How would you know the secrets? I feel like I'm just like seeing a bunch of red flags going on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did you know that there is a medical syndrome called autosomala dominant compelling helioaphthalmatic outburst? Have you heard of that? Have you heard of it? Only recently had I heard of it. I got me too, but like, <laughs> I think mine is a little more recent than I've heard of it. <laughs> It is characterized by the sudden outburst of uncontrollable sneezing due to exposure to sun. The acronym for this syndrome is ACHU. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so is that what I have? Yeah. Yeah. It's also called sun sneezing. You didn't believe me. Because it seems so crazy. I told you it was a thing. <laughs> We'd literally be like mid-conversation, like in the car, and then he would just peer up directly at the sun and then just sneeze like crazy. Many a different time I have on purpose used the sun. Nothing's worse than a sneeze being stuck in your throat. And so a lot of times I just look right up at the sun because I know I'm sneezing. Especially if I'm going from like a dark room to a bright outside, I'm sneezing at least once, if not two, three times. Yeah, so that makes sense. But like, why does everybody use that term when they sneeze? They like purposely say the word achoo when they sneeze? Or did we make the syndrome match the sound? I think we, I think we made the syndrome match the sound. <laughs> We're like, okay, we need a syndrome with these initials. <laughs> but sun sneezers are 20 to 30% of the population. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, I'm not sure if it is or not, but my mom's got it and I definitely got it. That's for sure. My grandma used to always say a cheesifer when she sneezed. A cheesifer! Yeah. And now Karen says it. Yeah. Or she would say cheese and crackers. <laughs> <laughs> I like it when Karen says a cheesifer, not because I think it's cool or funny, but because if she doesn't say that, she absolutely just fucking screams when she sneezes. Yes, she really... <sighs> Me and Carl used to get so mad at her when we were kids that she would sneeze so loud. It'll be three in the morning. We'll be at the cabin and from upstairs, I'll hear Karen just shout sneeze. Well, I don't know. I have a fact here that says you can't sneeze when you're asleep because the nerves that trigger sneezing are also sleeping. Well, she must be awake. <laughs> <laughs> sneezing that loud on purpose. But there's just no way that somebody can naturally sneeze that loud and like have to sneeze that loud. No. It, it's a choice. That's true, but also literally like four days after the last time that happened, you sneezed at our house and it was- That was really loud, yeah. It was very loud. So you can't sneeze when you're sleeping. Yeah, true. You That's can. crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I've never sneezed while sleeping. That you knew of though. No, Can you kidding. cough while sleeping? I would doubt it, but I don't know. Hmm. It's weird that you blink while you sleep. Uh, what? what? Yeah. And you can feel it when your eyes are closed. 
your eyelids still like flutter. Well, yeah, like twitching is one thing, but like they don't like open and close. No, but it has, it like does the same thing. It's to like clear the eyes and lubricate the eyes. Oh, I thought it was just like... As if your eyes opened. No, I thought that the fluttering was just due to dreaming and that it was like your brain activity just like stirring you up. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously people in the U.S. say bless you when you sneeze. And that originated because people used to believe that a sneeze caused someone to expel their soul out of their body. I mean, with how hard some people sneeze. (laughs) (laughs) That is just so weird. So yeah, they started saying bless you to protect against the devil from snatching your soul. It makes sense. If you expose your soul, it's kind of just like putting your Achilles heel out there in the world. And if the devil is walking by, I mean, he's going to snatch it. I would snatch someone's soul. I guess, yeah, the devil is known for that. And I was always told, only sell your soul for a good price. Don't let somebody steal for free. (laughs) Other cultures around the world say health when someone sneezes, such as Latinos who say salud and Germans who say Gesundheit. I had no idea that Gesundheit meant health. In Spain, though, they weirdly say Jesus when you sneeze. They say Jesus. Well, do you think that what's the thing most powerful? Just a, a lay person blessing you? Or do you think that just trying to summon the presence of Jesus to combat the devil is better? I don't know. I don't need any blessings from anyone, no matter who it is. Bless up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so contrary to what your grandfather probably told you, a sneeze does not stop your heart. It slightly alters the rhythm of your heartbeat. So nothing to be medically concerned about or like you know, worried that any type of demon is going to come because your heart fluttered. (laughs) (laughs) Not just any demon. The demon. The demon. A sneeze can travel up to 100 miles per hour. Mine actually go like 140. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Real quick. You got a lot of NOS on those or? I crank it up. Anything else to say about sneezing? I like sneezing. I think that's controversial. I think many people... Well, I like it once it's done. It's kind of like how I like... After I've barfed. I don't like barfing, but I feel so good after I do. What would you rather do? (laughs) (laughs) Sneeze, obviously. Would you rather sneeze or cough? Coughing doesn't feel like a relief to me. So you're going to sneeze? Yeah. Would you rather sneeze or take a big dump? I don't store up my dumps like you do. Okay. Would you rather sneeze or take the exact same size dump as always? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, that's the end of the sneezing. I like sneezing. That's just what I'm saying. (laughs) I like doing science podcasts. I don't know. Normally, I drift more toward like the history podcasts or the geographical podcasts, but it's nice to sprinkle in some science in there. Sir Isaac Newton would be proud. Probably not. He would just wouldn't get it. He wouldn't get why we're making fun of him at all. So I have some bonus facts. Bonus facts. Some really cool facts about weddings. Did you know that weddings and their subsequent receptions produce between 400 and 600 pounds of waste in just one night? That's a lot of garbage bags. Yeah, think about like all the single use items that are used. You know, you're throwing rice at the bride and groom. I mean, that's just like fistfuls of rice. Yeah, that's multiple fistfuls. Plus all the energy it takes to cook the rice first to, and then to pack it into the hard rice balls. 
And then, yeah, hundreds of dollars of flowers that are just the most gorgeous flowers ever that are only used for one day. <laughs> That's such a waste. A lot of times, single use, I mean, everything, obviously, like napkins, forks, plates, things like that. I mean, hopefully you're not using single use plates for a wedding. Because that'd be trashy. Be pretty trashy. Hopefully you're not using single use plates ever. That's true. <laughs> we, at our wedding, we had an outdoor wedding. And we had, I think, like three or four friends that we paid to be like assistants. They worked the open bar and they like helped clean up and set things up. And one of their duties was washing dishes, washing plates with the hose and yeah. the wash bucket. And Hopefully we didn't have that much waste. I don't think we did. I guess, what kind of cups did we have? We had reusable cups. Yeah? Yeah. For beer and drinks and everything? We had... Um, Jars? Mason jars, yeah. Damn, we're good. Yeah. I'm very, very happy with how our wedding turned out. However, I would not do a wedding like that now. I would be very curious to know what kind of wedding I would have now because I feel like we've changed so much. I feel like we would... I don't even know if we'd have a wedding. That's a good question. <laughs> You're saying we would just elope? We would just go fill out the paperwork. Elope. Elope five blocks away to the city courthouse or what? And just like go on with the day. That's not elopement. That's romance, baby. (laughs) Okay, anyways. A lot of times in Western society, we look down upon Eastern traditions to say that they are sexist, which a lot of times they are. (laughs) And one of the things that we cite as being sexist is the fact that a lot of Chinese and Indian and Muslim marriages still use dowries. Which is a payment. A payment, yeah, for marriage. And it's kind of feels like you're selling your daughter, you know. I mean, it, it, it pretty much is selling your daughter into marriage. Or you're, in some cultures, you're like paying a husband to take your daughter off your hands. Mm-hmm. Because the women are economic burdens on the household because they don't, can't work, you know, so... But I think people don't really think about the fact that we, in this culture, still have an economic exchange between one side to the other. The biggest one being the diamond ring. It's just a a large rock on a ring. And of course, the rock, like any good industrial country, comes from usually a place of just like suffering and poverty. That's why they call blood diamonds. Blood diamonds. Yeah, most diamonds have just a horrible path to market, a lot of death and exploitation. Lab-grown diamonds are the way to go. Along with lab-grown meat. (laughs) But also, you don't need a diamond. Yeah. If you really want a diamond, get a lab-grown one. Yeah, that's one thing that I would definitely change if we got married now. I obviously wouldn't get a diamond. Mm -hmm. We'd obviously get an opal. I wouldn't get anything. I don't wear my ring ever, so why would I get... You know, why would I buy anything? But yeah, women expect to be presented with a multi-thousand dollar gift in order to accept an invitation of marriage. And I think that's fucked up. I'm glad we chose to go together. Yeah. (laughs) We decided to get married together. We didn't, you didn't propose like in a traditional way. Very correct. Yeah. I mean, obviously I preferred it because I set it up that way, but. We were like. You want to go to dinner and decide that we're going to get married? We're like, yep, all right, let's do it. Did you prefer that we did it that way? Fuck yeah, big time. 
nerve wracking enough as it is, even when you're 100% sure that you do want to marry somebody. Yeah. And we'd only been dating for six months. Yeah. <laughs> and we already waited like two months. We're like, ah, all right, we're definitely sure. Now's the time. Which just seems crazy now because at the time it felt like we were like so sure and so like it didn't feel risky at all. We were so sure. While it does feel crazier now, I still feel like... We were right. I, yeah, I'm like, I'm still as sure as we were, I was back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the reason why I found all this wedding stuff was because I was very curious, why do brides wear white? I think we've all heard, you know, that it symbolizes virginity, that it's like a religious thing, that you're projecting to everyone in the congregation that you're a virgin and you're giving yourself to your husband or whatever. Pure. Pure? Pure. Okay. And interestingly, that is not the origin of the white dress. That is a meaning that was put onto it after it rose in popularity. So up until two centuries ago, all brides wore their wedding dresses many times after the wedding. And most often, they did not even buy a new dress for the wedding. They just wore their best dress that they had at the time. Hmm. So it was just like a very special occasion. As if you were going out for like a New Year's Eve party today, you just like pick your best dress and wear it. You wouldn't like painstakingly plan everything and like go shopping and then like store away your dress for the next 50 years. And say yes to the dress and all that, all those steps. Yeah. And like make this big charade out of it. You just like put on a dress and go get married. Hmm. That's not what I expected. That is pretty obscure. That's pretty obvious way to do it. Like you just wear a nice dress and you don't really care that it's this insane expensive thing. Anyways, white wedding dresses were not seen until Queen Victoria was married in a white dress in 1840. So there was never, ever any tradition of wearing white on the wedding day. There was never any tradition of white symbolizing virginity. In regards to wedding, Queen Victoria started that trend. This was one of the first ever photographed weddings. And that image of her and her husband getting married in the white dress was like plastered on every newspaper. It was one of the first, like I said, pictures of a wedding ever. And so that was just kind of the image that was projected into the world of how a wedding should look or how like a modern wedding is. And soon after, of course, same as now, celebrity influence, wealthy women started wearing white wedding dresses to emulate that royal look. And at the time, white clothing, especially for like an expensive big gown, often made of like tulle and expensive fabrics, white was associated with wealth because you obviously both then and now had to get your dress cleaned after wearing it. Anything white had to be cleaned after wearing it. I think it's also just white anything. Doesn't last. Takes Yeah, it takes so much effort to get it or keep it white. Yeah. It takes so much effort, and as soon as you mess something white up, it's Looks horrible. pretty much ruined. Yeah. And so you're kind of showing that you don't care if this is garbage in a week or whatever. Yeah, and it's also just like, look at how... Because I think with, like you said, such a grand dress. Like, look at this whole dress. I have nothing wrong with this dress. It is perfect. Yeah. It is so nice. And once those white dresses came into vogue, they obviously were then worn many, many times after the wedding. It wasn't until I think like like 50 years ago that women had the very, very special wedding dress that was a special dress that was only for that. So 
before that it was simpler gowns and a gown that you would wear again. But people don't really wear gowns anymore besides for a wedding, which is odd. Well, it's not odd. It's just like a weird cultural shift, I guess. I just love a good gown. And still today, brides in India, China, Pakistan, and Vietnam most commonly wear red on their wedding day. Much cooler. Really? I think it's stupid to have any color that's associated with a wedding dress. Like, again, I think you should wear whatever the hell you want on your wedding dress without being told by culture what to wear. I thought it was because brides are trying to make a statement that says, like, you mess with me, here comes the blood. I'll cut you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's good. And another interesting tidbit is that grooms have not worn wedding bands in the U.S. until the last 100 years. Another farce by the wedding industry stealing our hard-earned dough. Yeah. Well, your ring was only like $70, but you don't wear it, so. So in general, not quite the extent is your ring. Yeah. Yeah, we've both been wearing silicone rings for two years or more. Half our marriage, more. Mm-hmm. I've been wearing it for definitely over two years, right? Yeah, I think it was about three weeks after the wedding, you stopped wearing your wedding ring. (laughs) Switched it over to the rubber. Yeah. Yeah, but there's another example of sexism within the marriage structures that men have only been wearing a wedding band for 100 years. They obviously have never and do not still wear an engagement ring like women do. And it's just a symbol of the man laying claim over the woman. Saying, all other men, back away, I own this woman. That's what it is. (sighs) The patriarchy, hard at work. Mm -hmm. But on the plus side, divorce rates are the lowest they've been since the 70s. Well, is that a good thing? Well, it would be better if they had just never gotten married in the first place. Yeah, that's for sure. You mean like... The ones that were going to be divorced or like all of them? No, the ones that stayed married. (laughs) (laughs) Get that divorce rate to 100%. Yeah, I wonder why the divorce rate is getting better. It's been steadily getting better for a while now. I think cultural norms are probably pressuring people into getting married less. Yeah, which is awesome. Yeah, many people got marriages because, you know, make the family for the kids. And Mm -hmm. then it just blows up eventually because they weren't in love in the first place. It is interesting. Obviously, we've had thousands of generations of people who got married because they were supposed to and never had the opportunity culturally to get divorced, like socially. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the opportunity. They might have had a bad marriage, but they couldn't get divorced. And the boomers were basically raised into that same world where they were expected to get married. So they did. Mm -hmm. And then in that short period of time that they came of age, Apparently, we had a cultural shift, and they said, no, we're not staying married. We're not going to stay in a bad marriage, and they're the first generation to say that. They're like, all right, we can just start ripping up divorces, and they started hitting it pretty heavy. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. So hopefully that was like a learning period where once divorce became an option, people are maybe getting better now. Yeah, and, and it's like almost one generation or one or two generations is caught in that one little limbo where they were forced to get married, but then they decided on their own to get divorced. And then now, because of that, the generations afterward, like you said, don't feel forced to get married as much. And therefore, they aren't getting married as young and as willy-nilly. And therefore, they aren't getting divorced as much. Mm -hmm. So it's like the problem fixed itself almost really quickly. A little bit of childhood trauma can go a long way. 
Yeah, I think Gen Xers were the first generation ever to grow up in divorced families. And so that really informs what you do in your marriage or lack of marriage in the future. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, we always hear that the divorce rate is 50%. So like people always like to joke or even kind of serious when we get married or somebody that we know gets married saying like, oh, 50% divorce rate. But maybe happily or sadly, I don't know. Divorce rates are heavily, heavily correlated with different factors. It's not just like any old marriage has a 50% chance. Our marriage does not have a 50% chance of divorce, not even close to 50%. Even disregarding any like level of love that we say we feel. If you look at pure statistics, our marriage does not have a 50% divorce rate chance. They are so, so strongly correlated to race, education, income, having children at a young age, and having parents who, who are divorced. And because in most of those categories, we got pretty lucky, our odds for marriage are better than most. Yeah, so that's not good for those people that are in those bad categories, but... That's what we're advocating change for. Yeah. So that ends our wedding segment. What an, just another smorgasbord of great topics. Mm-hmm. Classic combination of colors, sneezing, and weddings. I really wish I could see ultraviolet because I think that it would be my favorite color. You can see ultraviolet. Your brain just doesn't know what to do with it. Oh, fuck. I think I would like it the most because I really like violet, and I think that ultraviolet just would be better. We don't have any ultra colors yet. Violet was the name that I had picked out for my hypothetical future child. Violet and Charlie. Violet, yes. Charlie's out. Why? Because my name, middle name was Charles, and I just never loved it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the full name would be Charlotte. but. And then we'd call her Chuck or what? No, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, you wouldn't have your middle name as Charles by that point anyways, because your middle name would be Ian. Yeah, that's true. Ian's going to change his name to Edgar. Edgar Ian White pretty soon. Yeah, a couple years here, probably. So... Everyone start wrapping their head around it and so that you're not protesting when the time comes. There's going to be a lot of people that said, why would you do this? You know, what's going on? I'm going to say, I told you I was going to do this, going to do this years ago. Yeah. They're going to say, what? I'm say, check the tapes, look at the podcast. And also names are utterly meaningless, like most things that we ascribe meaning to. So I wanted to name my children Violet and Charlie. Mm-hmm. Violet and Charlie Brown White. Violet Femme White and Charlie Brown White. Yeah. Violet Femme White. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. No, I want to have kids just for that. That is an example of a wrong reason to have kids. (laughs) An example of one of many. Yes. Wrong reasons to have kids. Mm -hmm. Like wanting a (laughs) mini-me. It's just something I hear all the time. All the time, which is just the worst reason probably ever. Ah, uh, but yes, like I was saying, money's not real. Names aren't real. God. God's not real. Like I was saying, what we see isn't real. It's just light waves. It's not things. It's just yeah things bouncing off of things. So. So stop caring about stuff so much, everyone. People get so worked up. At first, it's like, wow, if I don't care about anything, how can I survive? And it's like, totally fine. The same as always is just that you can just chill out. 
Yeah, and it's not like you're not caring about anything at all. You're just taking the importance off of a lot of things or taking the importance down a lot on things. It lets you focus on the important stuff. Like for me right now, I'm focusing on my marriage and pickleball. In what order? It's marriage and pickleball, but it's a little too close to be comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) As promised, we have acquired an email for our podcast. We have an email. What is it? It is nobodies.pod.email at gmail.com. Yeah, kind of a stupid email address, I'd say. It's pretty stupid. But <laughs> we tried a bunch of things and they were all taken, so we didn't want to put numbers in it and we couldn't do anything besides letters, numbers, or periods. Yeah, they didn't let us put any like emojis in it or anything. Yeah, the first thing we tried was dollar sign, sunglasses, face sign, Pope, mermaid emoji. But that was taken. That was taken. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so please email us, especially, especially if you live in Germany, but really anywhere around the world. I would say if you live in Germany, definitely do it. If you live anywhere in the world besides Germany or the U.S., then probably do it. And if you live in the U.S., then like maybe do it. If you send us an email with anything about the podcast, a comment, something you liked, something you hated, and also in the email, you send us an address, we will send a magnet with our podcast logo anywhere in the world. A really cool magnet. It's really cool. That's a promise. And we have stickers. There will be two stickers, one magnet. (laughs) (laughs) You're really sweetening the deal. Oh, baby. Yeah, so I I don't know. I think our fan mail is going to start pouring in. Yeah, with this get one free, get two free deal. (laughs) (laughs) Also, if you are listening on Spotify, all of our episodes, or nearly all our episodes, have a poll, and it has a question relating to the episode. Yeah, and they're very, very, very stupid, yet funny. Similar to our podcast, it's light, but enjoyable. It makes you think. I think they're very, very funny. And it makes you chuckle. I just looked through them the other day just to like see which ones we still had to update. And (laughs) they're really funny. Most of them. Email us. Check out the polls. And that is nobodies.pod.email at gmail.com. We will have it in the description anyways, but yeah. We're going to put it in the description and probably every single episode description. But if you send us an email and it's from like Hotmail or something, I don't know. It probably goes straight to spam. If you send us an email and it's from a website that just sounds horrendous, like at... Askcrusher.com or something. Yeah. If it's something inappropriate, we're not going to do it. And if it's something suspect at like surveillance at FBI.gov, then also <laughs> that's probably just a little too much, a little suspect. All right. Can't wait to hear all your emails that are going to start flooding in. We'll try to keep up with them, but thank you. We'll respond in two to 12 business days. <laughs>